For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Can you hear me back there in the corner and online? Nicholas, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Hi, everyone. So yesterday, we yesterday we had had an all day sitting and began our practice commitment period. We practice commitment period. Our study theme for the practice period is the Vimalakirti Sutra or Scripture. which is about, well, involves a great awakened late person, Vimalakirti, who lived in the city of Vaishali in the time of Shakyamuni Buddha. And uh, yesterday I talked about chapter one and chapter two. And chapter one is about uh, Buddha fields and how when a Buddha awakens, there's a, the world around them then becomes a Buddha field. Uh, and I talked a little bit about chapter two, which I want to focus on this evening, which is about the activities uh, of the great awakened layperson Vimalakirti and his uh, practice entering all mundane realms. So, uh, just to start off this chapter, uh, it says, at that time, there lived in the great city of Vaishali a certain Michavi, which is a kind of tribe, called Vimalakirti by name, having served the ancient Buddhas, he had generated the roots of virtue by honoring them and making offerings to them. He had trained, he had attained tolerance as well as eloquence. He played with the great superknowledges. He had attained the power of incantations or dharanis and, and, and fearlessnesses. He had conquered all demons and opponents. He had penetrated the profound way of the Dharma. He was liberated through the transcendence of wisdom, Prajna Paramita. Having integrated his realization with skill and liberative technique, he was especially, he was expert, excuse me, in knowing the thoughts and actions of living beings. So uh, this uh, skill and liberative technique, as Robert Thurman translates it, here is uh, sometimes called upaya in Sanskrit, skillful means. So this is, uh, in, in terms of Vimalakirti, it's talking about the skillful means or the skill and liberative technique of a Buddha, but also this is a bodhisattva practice. So this 
sutra is a bodhisattva Mahayana sutra. This is a sutra about uh, those who practice awakening for all beings. And this practice of of, um, skill in liberative technique is important for for us as bodhisattva practitioners. It's described most fully in uh, the Lotus Sutra, another important Mahayana Sutra. But here it's talking about this combination. So the Mahakirti was, had been liberated, was liberated, is liberated through the paramita, the transcendent practice of wisdom of seeing into the heart of things, of everything, of prajna is called an insight, uh, this immediate awareness. And uh, this is uh, an important aspect of Mahayana practice. But it it goes on to say that the Malakirti, having integrated his realization his realization through wisdom with skill and liberative technique, was expert in knowing the thoughts and actions of all living beings and how to help liberate them and relieve them of suffering. So this is uh, an important aspect of practice, the integration of wisdom and compassion. Two wings of the Mahayana bird, to put it that way. Uh, So this chapter, uh, it's not that long, but it goes on to talk about how the Malakirti practiced skillful means, skill and liberative technique. Knowing the strength or weakness of their faculties and being gifted with unrivaled eloquence, the Malakirti taught the Dharma appropriately to each. So, again, to comment on that, part of skillful means is, or maybe the heart of skillful means, is respecting uh, differences and the particularities of all people and all beings. And, of course, the, the perfection of wisdom is about seeing the wholeness and sameness of all beings, but also to be helpful to beings we need to appreciate differences, diversity. We need to appreciate the particular difficulties of each person, each being, each event. So uh, the Malakirti, like the Buddha, taught the Dharma appropriately to each being. Having applied himself energetically to the Mahayana, he understood it and accomplished his tasks with great finesse. He lived with the deportment of a Buddha. He he appeared really as a Buddha, and his superior intelligence was as wide as an ocean. He was praised, honored, and commended by all the Buddhas and was respected by all the gods. In order to develop living beings, with his skill and liberative techniques or his skillful means, 
He lived in the great city of Vaishali. So this is the introduction in the sutra to this person, this being, um, the Malakirti. And, you know, we're, we're looking at, at the sutra and at the Malakirti in this practice period uh, to inspire us as lay practitioners, not monks, living in a great city, Chicago, not Vashon, although we have people at a distance who also join us online. Uh, so, uh, how can, so the point of studying this sutra, and the point of all Dharma study really is how does it support our practice? So we will continue through the practice period looking at the material of the Malakriti Sutra, but also considering what it means for us. So in the case of the Malakirti, it's, uh, it, I mean, and he is this very lofty figure, of course, it says his wealth was inexhaustible for the purpose of sustaining the poor and the helpless. He observed pure morality in order to protect the immoral. He maintained tolerance and self-control in order to reconcile beings who were angry or cruel or violent and brutal. He blazed with energy in order to inspire people who were lazy. He maintained concentration, mindfulness, and meditation in order to sustain the mentally troubled. He attained decisive wisdom in order to sustain the foolish. So we might all look to uh, figures like the Malakirti in our own laziness and foolishness. And then it goes on to say he wore the white clothes of the layman, yet lived in, impeccably like a religious devotee. So uh, going back to India, I think this was true in China as well. And actually I saw it in Japan. Uh, lay people wear white, lay practitioners, lay adepts wear white. Uh, Monks and uh, priests wear black, or some of us wear those. But uh, anyway, that's just mentioned here. And images, there are not as many images of Malakirti as there are of other great bodhisattvas, but there's some, and, and sometimes, sometimes it's painted uh, wearing white. And a great historical lay people, lay adepts in China, Buddhist adepts are also depicted wearing white. So it goes on to talk about some of the ways in which the Malakirti uh, practiced and helped awaken beings with his skillful, skillfulness in the city of Vaishali. Just to read some excerpts, he made his appearance at the fields of sports and in the casinos, but his aim was always to mature those people uh, where, who were attached to games and gambling. <clears throat> he visited the fashionable uh, teachers of the day, local teachers, uh, yet always kept unswerving loyalty to the Buddha. He understood all the mundane and transcendental sciences and esoteric practices, 
So he, he uh, studied science and he studied various other uh, spiritual practices. Yet he always took pleasure in, in the delight of the Buddha Dharma. He mixed in all crowds, yet were respected as the foremost of all. So in, what, in whatever activity he was involved with, he uh, was apparent as someone who was uh, teaching truth, teaching reality, which is dharma. And he was always, always considered the most skillful in each of those. So it goes on with many descriptions. Um, he engaged in all sorts of business, yet had no interest in profit or possession. To train living beings, he would appear at crossroads and on street corners. And to protect them, he anticipated, he participated in government. So uh, to, de to develop children, he visited all the schools to demonstrate the evils of desire. He even entered the brothels to establish drunkards in correct mindfulness. He entered all the cabarets and taverns. So uh, he went into bars to, to, uh, to demonstrate sobriety. <laughs> uh, so this is the way he's depicted. It goes on. He was honored as the businessman, among businessmen, because he demonstrated the priority of the Dharma. He was honored as the landlord among landlords because he renounced aggressiveness of ownership. He was even honored as the warrior among warriors because he cultivated endurance and determination and fortitude. So it goes on like that. Um, he also, it also says he was, he was compatible with ordinary people because he appreciated the excellence of ordinary merits. So uh, this is this model layman who is uh, in all in world in the world in worldly activities and very skillful in them, most skillful for the sake of expressing truth and, and dharma and dharma. At that time, out of this very skill in meditative techniques, the Malakirti manifested himself as, as if sick. So this is uh, an important part of the sutra. He, uh, and this, the uh, scenes that follow, and the chapters that follow, involve his illness and Various, and as it says at this point, uh, to inquire after his health, the king, the officials, the lords in this feudal, feudal society, the youths, this, the aristocrats, the householders, the businessmen, the townsfolk, the country folk, and thousands of other living beings came from, forth from the great city of Arshali and called on this invalid, the Malakirti, depicted as an invalid. So part, and, and we'll hear more about that this next weekend uh, in chapter five, but he uses his illness as a way of 
teaching about reality and encouraging people to practice and to awaken. It's, it's, it touches on that here, and it gets, it'll get more into that. But he talks about the frailty of uh, our bodies. As this body is only a vessel of many sicknesses, men, wise men do not rely on it. This body is like a ball of foam, unable to bear any pressure. It is like a water bubble, not remaining very long. It is like a mirage born from the appetites of the passions. So it goes on like this. It is like a dream being an unreal, unreal vision. It is like a reflection being the image of former actions. So here's touching on karma, that this body uh, suffers or, or feels or has the consequence of our former activities. It is like an echo being dependent on conditioning. So, this, so there are many uh, classic Buddhist teachings that are embedded in these, in these descriptions in the sutra. So it is like an echo being dependent on many conditions. It is the teaching of Pratichasamapada, to use the technical term, dependent co-origination, which is a, a kind of wisdom teaching, important wisdom teaching, that all things are a function of everything else. Uh, so, uh, you know, each of us, as we sit here or online, is um, actually uh, a product, a function, an arising of everything else. Everybody we've ever known, all the other people in Chicago or, or Nicholas in Indiana, uh, for all the people in our life and in, and in all the people we've known are part of what is sitting on the seat right now. So we are, and everything is like that, everything. So Tim Han uses the example, of course, of holding up paper and saying, can you see the trees? Can you see the nitrogen in the soil, soil, can you see the clouds, can you see the water, the rainfall, all of which made this possible. And you can take any event and, and uh, similarly see how each of us in our bodies and our health are all a product of uh, all of these things. So uh, it goes on. It is like a cloud being characterized by turbulence and dissolution. So, uh, as human beings, we tend to live in turbulence and dissolution. And sustained zazen practice can help calm that sound. But still, the world is turbulent. The world is difficult. The world brings us challenges. No matter how calm and settled and peaceful you may become, it is like a flash of lightning being unstable and decaying every moment. 
the body is ownerless, being a product of a variety of conditions, which goes back to what I was saying. He goes on talking about the limitations of the body. Duration, its duration is never certain. Certain only is its end in death. So he, after all of this, he says, you should despair of this personal body, not, not rely on it, not, um, not ignore it, not ignore good health, but not, not base your life on this body lasting forever. Um, but instead, ad- admire the body of its autogata, the Buddha, the best come one. So this body of Buddha is another important basic teaching in Mahayana that uh, the body of reality, the body of Buddha, is not separate from ourself, our small particular self that's going to pop like a bubble, uh, is also an expression of this body of, of Tathagata. Tathagata is says for the one who comes and goes in suchness. So he talks about this, this Dharma body. He says, just for example, the body of a Tathagata is born of the stores of merit and wisdom. It is born of morality, of meditation, of wisdom, of liberation, and of the knowledge and vision of liberation. It is born of love and compassion, joy and impartiality. So you may recognize there the four brother of the Love, compassion, joy, and impartiality is this translation of this. It is born of charity, discipline, and self-control, born of the path of ten virtues, born of patience and gentleness. It is born of the roots of virtue planted by solid efforts. It is born of the concentrations, liberations, meditations, and absorptions. So basically, this practice that we're doing, this Sazan practice that we do over, you know, that, that the point is to sustain it, to do this practice over time. And what unfolds over time is uh, this awareness. So we say, um, the four vows we'll say later, one, uh, the fourth one is uh, Buddha, uh, Buddha's Buddha is unsurpassable. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. We've got to realize it. Another translation is we've got to embody it, to become like Buddha. And so this is the effect of practicing, sustained practice of this way of meditation, of calmness, of compassion, of wisdom. And it's not that we practice in order to reach some other place, because all of that is right here. But this example of the, of the Malakirti is to inspire us to uh, 
to realize that, to see how that is in our in our being right now. And there's much more to say about the Malakirti uh, himself as we proceed in this in this sutra. Um, so, um, as I indicated, he's a he combines the teaching of wisdom of the Madhyamaka school, of the school of emptiness, with compassion. And compassion as expressed particularly in the inconceivable teachings like the Five Women and Sutra, the Avatarsaka. So both of those we have study groups here as looking at it. But it, the point is to integrate those, to integrate um, all of these wisdoms and kindnesses in our own life. And that's and it's not about reaching some super being. It's about seeing how they are here. In uh, that we have the capacity to express those in different ways at different times. So uh, this sutra is an encouragement to us to see that. Um, and I'll mention again one of the key teachings in the uh, Malakirti Sutra that I talked about a little bit yesterday in the Sanskrit, Anupadika Dharma Shanti. That's it. It's the, uh, the patience or tolerance with the ungraspability, the unknowability, the un indefinability of things, of everything, of it all. They're not really any objects because everything is alive. And we can come to realize that when we see how all things come together to produce this world. So it's not about transcending or, or going beyond our ordinary life. It's seeing how all of these qualities and virtues that the Malakirti expresses can be part of our life, can be part of our everyday practice. So again, the Malakirti lives in a big city like we do, and he practices in the world like all of you do in various ways and tries to help people and help people awaken in all those contexts. So um, this is uh, maybe a very lofty example for us, but it's but the point of studying this is to see how this may be available in our lives. So I'll stop there. I'm interested in your comments, questions, responses, perspectives, questions about the Malakirti or this text or this practice or anything else. So way please let me know if anybody online has a comment. And yes, Ken, I see. <clears throat> yes, uh, uh, thank you, Tiger, for the uh, reading here. Yeah, Ramal Kirti seems like uh, a very inspired choice for study, you know, in this day and age and everything. And um, I've I've been looking at um, section one, section two, and section five of his uh, 
teachings that are uh, from online. And the um, and from what you just read there, he is, as you say, connecting with all kinds of different people, understanding their life, having compassion for their situation, empathizing with their various plights and everything. And the um, so it's a very concrete kind of contact and uh, uh, connection with other folks based in compassion. In this day and age, we know all the people, you know, we are, of course, in contact with our families, friends, the sangha, like that. But at the same time, what's different from Valmas Kirti's era is that we are dealing with, you know, something in the area of the media, concepts. Now I can conceive of soil erosion in Nepal, and how should I be dealing with that? And, uh, you know, the economic situation in Europe, this kind of thing. And those things aren't always accurate. I mean, there's and sometimes they're proven to be illusory. Maybe yes. an issue that was out here, you know, in the middle of Siberia, turns out not to be correct. Or something is unperceived. Something is, uh, there's actually a big problem out there environmentally or politically, something like that. And we miss the whole thing. <clears throat> so we have... Vamalakirti's realm, where we're dealing very concretely with uh, the folks we encounter every day, you know, in, their, in the various realms. At the same time, we have this other realm of, I wouldn't say illusion, but it is abstract. And uh, so that I wonder how Vamalakirti would deal with that. Thank you. Yes, this is the question. What's that? I think this is the question for us. Oh, okay. So, you know, you mentioned media, so, you know, there's misinformation intentionally promulgated. Mm, well, we know that. Um, uh, and, you know, it, so how do we take this ancient Indian scripture and apply it to um, our current um, complex world with all, the, all of its... Uh, Vaults and so forth. So, uh, yeah, uh, I don't have like one answer to that. Uh, if I had an answer, maybe I would say Sangha. Because, uh, so for example, in our little Chicago Sangha, which stretches to Indiana and California and Wisconsin and Minnesota and Ohio and New York and so forth. Um, we have many people who are who are doing the, the Buddha work, sometimes called the work of the Malakirti. We have students, students studying how to do various things. We have teachers at various levels, from grade school to graduate school. We have uh, technical people who are working with the technology and helping us to use it appropriately. We have attorneys, we have psychologists, we have uh, conservationists, we have martial arts teachers, you know, just in our little sangha, uh, and uh, businessmen, and uh, you know, so I think, you know, we do have to work at translating uh, these ancient Buddhist teachings to 
our situation. That's the challenge of American Buddhism, of modern Buddhism, to America. Um, and, and yet, there are these, these old teachings. This one, uh, it's not clear when it was composed. It's supposed to be the words of Buddha. Buddha's students, like Tamala Kirti, uh, from Buddha's time, 2,500 years ago, but probably put into writing, I don't know, exactly history, history, maybe the year 200 or something like that. Maybe earlier. So, okay, what, how do these teachings, and then I talk about Dogen in 13th century Japan or Hongzhou in 12th century China or Bodhidharma. So, this practice that's, that has been kept alive generation after generation that we are now taking on. It's very rich in its traditions. And, the, and it's always shifted and changed when it moves to new cultures. So this is a whole other big topic, but it's really our topic. And so I'm hoping that um, by looking at this teaching of a great awakened layperson in a big town in India, big city in India, that we can look at well, what are some of the things that we can do individually and collectively. So thank you for that question. That's the question for the practice period. Thank you. Other comments, responses, perspectives, questions? Hi, Gishin. Thank you for that talk. Uh, it's been a long time since I read the Malakirti Sutra, and I am going to reread it. <laughs> um, but um, so we all know the story of how Shakyamuni was born into a wealthy family and how his path to awakening. But I don't know how Vimalakirti got from, obviously he's an upper class person. How did he get to be this awakened Bodhisattva? Is that in this? I can't remember. I, I, the older I get, the more I forget. So maybe I went through that, but I, I'm interested. Well, I mentioned it yesterday. I, I gave a spoiler. Ah. At the very end of the sutra, it talks about, well, throughout it mentions that he has practiced with many Buddhas and so forth. Um, but, you know, they have a very different way of seeing things. They, in classical Buddhism, they talk about uh, rebirth and, and many lives. And some of us may believe that, and some of us probably don't. Uh, it's not part of our work, uh, modern consumerist capitalist worldview. But at any rate, uh, it says towards in the, one of the last chapters, it's not one of the chapters we're focusing on in the practice period, that he had practiced for a long time with Aksodhya Buddha in the pure land of Abharati, not, not Amida or Amitabha's pure land, which is important in Asian Buddhism. So, but, that, but what that means is that he worked at it. He'd done meditation for lifetimes. We can understand that kind of language um, metaphorically, you know, too. He's, he had worked at it, but then here he was, this uh, wealthy, skillful uh, person who was helping others to work. So we're all, you know, on the path, as it were, as it, 
as we say. And that's not about, and again, in Soto Zen, we emphasize it's not about, oh, if you practice long enough, someday you'll be like the Malakirti. It's about seeing how here, this week, this month, in this place, in this body, with this mind, with these friends, we are um, unfolding the capacity to be helpful, kind, to actually have skillful, liberative techniques. This is sort of what's stressed in this chapter. So that's something to talk about more, to, to develop these skills that help, that help people, that help relieve suffering, that help awaken, awaken beings. And uh, those of you who I know in this room all are doing that in various different ways. And part of compassion is that there are many, many, many different ways. It's not one mode. So, uh, but Sangha, or, or Dharmakaya, we could say, the body of Buddha, as reality itself, to see the whole metaverse and all the different universes as Sangha, everybody's doing something. Just have one quick comment. I think tonight is the first time I ever chanted that chant, and it was uh, quite wonderful. And I just put a request in that it be on our playlist. Well, we've chanted it before, but not um, very often. But not not as often as some others, and uh, maybe especially <laughs> during the practice period, we'll chant that because it mentions a molecule. Yeah. This is a, a, a poem by Hongzha. Chinese Soto adept in the 12th century. Um, I mentioned yesterday the self-fulfillment samadhi, though, which uh, is about Buddha fields. So we'll, we'll be chanting that sometimes, too. Other, uh, we have a little bit of time if there's a couple more responses or questions or comments. Hi, uh, it's Nicholas. Can you hear me? I'm sorry, Nicholas. I had you muted. Go ahead, though. Okay. Hi. Um, so you mentioned uh, something briefly that I uh, picked up on in the sutra, and I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate, and that is um, this idea of um, having patience with accepting how ungraspable um, Slash mysterious life is. Yes. Uh, yeah, I spoke about it some yesterday. I'll be speaking about it more. Maybe I'll have to put a plug in for this in every talk this practice period. But yeah, um, patience is such an important practice. We have six or ten, you know, kind of transcendent practices and Bodhisattva. Of course, there are lists and lists and lists of various uh, practices. And, and, uh, one of the things about the Robert German translation has a really wonderful three, actually, three glossaries in the back. People in the practice period received that, but anybody who's interested, I can send that to you. But these, uh, so there's, I, I mentioned some of them before Dr. Bahar's and in the course of just going through this material in the sutra, it mentions all these different systems of teaching. But at any rate, patience 
is subtle and it's really important. And I don't, I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite paramita. Maybe it is. It's certainly um, one of the most important practically. And it's, it's the one that I learned most about from my teacher, who was incredible vision. Um, but yeah, but patience is not passive. So this is an important point. So thank you for the question, Nicholas. Uh, and we're getting towards the end of the time, but I'll just say that what this particular way of talking about patience is, this is considered equivalent to, uh, in Sanskrit, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, unsurpassed, complete, perfect awakening. The equivalent of that is this patience or tolerance for the ungraspability of all events. The un, in, inconceivability, the indefinability of all events. So uh, this goes counter to our usual educational programs, <laughs> where we're where we're taught to figure out things and to liberate and decide things and, and define them and know what they are. And, you, and you're gonna you'll be given a test at the end of this at the end of the uh, semester or whatever. Um, and it's not that all that stuff is bad or that you shouldn't know things. In fact, everybody here knows a lot of stuff. And, and the point is, how do you use it to help beings and to help awaken beings? But beneath all that, unsurpassed, complete, perfect awakening is the fact or the practice or the awareness or the patience with, the tolerance of the ungraspability of anything. I can hold this up, but all that went into creating this event, the wood, the rain, actually did the Austin group who spoke to this for me during my transmission at Tassahara and everything in her life, you know, it's all in here. So, but we can't get a hold of it. So, our strong tendency to want to possess things, to want to know about them, to want to really understand everything, gets in the way of awakening. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't understand things again. It just means not to be obsessed by that, not to be caught by thinking we can we can do that. So thanks for the question, Nicholas, and please uh, ask that question every time you're here <laughs> because it's the it's the question. So it's it's a little past time, uh, but we're, we have uh, eight weeks of working with this text, and we have a, a lifetime of practicing it. So um, we'll close with. What do we close with? Four bodies after that.